Would you please join me as we stand together and turn in our Bibles to read God's Word from Genesis. And we turn this morning to Genesis chapter 32 as we continue our ongoing series of studies through the Bible's first book. I'm sure that many of you would know that this first book, this Bible book of beginnings, is full of all kinds of stories that tend to captivate the heart. And I wonder if someone was to ask you later on today, what is your most favorite story, that story that has had unusual influence spiritually in your life from the book of Genesis, which story you would point to. Because, of course, there are no small number of ones we could point to. We come today to a chapter that is rightly famous for reasons I'm sure we're getting ready to see. Chapter 32 and all 32 verses we want to walk through this morning. It's a chapter that's always had an unusual influence in my life. And I trust that you might find reasons even this morning why this is such a sweet chapter for the soul. But what I want to do to get us started is read what is that most famous part of chapter 32, verse 24 through 31. And Jacob's wrestling all night with the angel. And then pray that God would bless our study. And then we'll begin together. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel. Limping because of his hip. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we do come to your word this morning asking for your sovereign blessing upon our study. We thank you that your word is life unto us, it is living and active, and so we pray that you would instill within us through the work of your spirit a heart that is ready to receive your truth, to respond with faith and repentance as we seek your face. Help me to preach as you say I must with with boldness and with clarity that Christ would be exalted and that in looking upon him we all might find life in his name. And we do pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure a number of you might be like me in recent weeks as you have observed the headlines and watched the news of what's been going on in our country certainly since the beginning of the year and you've gotten a growing sense This might be one of those historic years that in decades to come, you might have children or grandchildren as they study history, they might come to you and ask, what was it like to live in 2020? You know, there's a pandemic, there's a financial panic, there are protests, there's a presidential election that is shaping up to be one of the most explosive in a few generations. It might be a year that I tend to think on many of our minds and our hearts would be etched forever in memory in a peculiar way. And if that's not true of you with this year, I think all of us would say that there are some points in our life, isn't there, that in a way that is unlike other events, other sorrows, other joys, there's something etched upon your mind's eye. 
that just even with a, a momentary summons to that memory, you're cast back with such vivid understanding and remembrance of what it was like at that moment when said sorrow, when said trial, when said joy came. And I tell you that because today we come to what is undoubtedly the most vivid memory that would have ever been etched upon Jacob's life in a life that is full of vivid memories. You know, if you took all of Jacob's stories in Scripture and made a painting of each one and then you put it in a biblical art gallery, the spotlight of that show would be the patriarch at Peniel for reasons that we're going to see today because this is the life-changing event in Jacob's life. It's the history-changing event in God's people's life. And students, as you come to chapter 32, this is the question that you want to have in the back of your mind as you begin to observe God's truth in the text. The question is, what kind of people are welcomed into the promised land? Because remember, Jacob left the promised land, we know, about 20 years ago in the narrative of Genesis. God has commanded him to go back to the promised land. He's not there yet, but he's basically there. And it's here that he has this most incredible of encounters with the Lord. And we ought to ask the question of why now? What kind of person will get to see the celebration of the Lamb and the new heavens and the new earth? And what the text is meaning to tell us this morning, the lesson that we need to learn from our passage is only those that rely on God alone will see the promised land. That's the lesson that Jacob needs to learn. Only those that rely on God alone will see the promised land. Because it's a text that comes to us with a warning. No self-sufficient, self-dependent person belongs in God's promised land. And we're going to see God yank that out of Jacob's life in this text. But the gospel welcome of the passage is... You can't make any sort of down payment in anything you've done, anything you've said, anything you've thought to earn a place in God's promised land. It's all of His divine grace and His promised blessing, sovereignly given to whomever He desires to give it to, in spite, like Jacob, of everything that they have done that means they ought not be welcomed in. So we're soon going to see Jacob welcomed into the promised land. He's going to be welcomed in because he's made ready today to receive that blessing. So if you glance down at the text, you might notice it's bookended by angelic encounters. You see in verse 1 and 2, a bunch of angels show up and meet with Jacob. At the end of the passage, Jacob, of course, wrestles with an angel. And in between, Jacob is in the fight of his life, or certainly preparing for the fight of his life. And so what I want to do is just kind of walk through this majestic scene in three different movements. First, we're going to see Jacob surrounded by angels. Secondly, Jacob sending for Esau. And thirdly, Jacob striving with the angel. So where did we leave off last week? If you glance back to the beginning of chapter 31, it's a chapter that began to tell us about Jacob's exodus from his uncle and father-in-law's home in Haran, Uncle Laban's house. Jacob had brought his wives out of their tents to communicate to them, hey, here's why I want you to leave the only homeland that you've ever known for decades and decades. And he said, first of all, well, your dad, my father-in-law, he's a trickster we can't trust anymore. But more importantly and significantly was the divine word of revelation. You'll notice that Jacob heard in chapter 31, verse 3, God said to him, 
return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So God said, it's time to get going. Begin your march back to the promised land. And as Jacob is now marching with his family back to the promised land, we see him as he's getting going, he runs into this meeting with angels. And so look at verse 1 of chapter 32 as we notice Jacob surrounded by angels. The text tells us, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Our kids, think back, if you've been with us in recent weeks, when was the last time that Jacob met angels? It was back in chapter 28. Remember that stone staircase dream, staircase stretching from heaven down to earth and angels going up and down it. Well, he saw angels just as he was departing the promised land. And now angels meet him once again just as he's arriving in the promised land. And both experiences of this angelic host were meant to communicate God's promise to protect Jacob wherever he goes. And maybe you might be like me and you've longed to have this sneak peek behind the veil of the unseen world and the legions and armies of God's angels that are always fighting for his people. That you might have some strength put into your spiritual spine. And Jacob gets that here, doesn't he? But blessed are those who believe without seeing. And this is indeed true. God is always protecting his people, even in realms unseen, in ways we don't understand. And if you stopped at verse 1, you actually might tend to think that this angelic encounter is somewhat threatening. Because the verb in Hebrew for met, it's a militant one. It almost has the sense of as Jacob's coming back into the promised land, just as cherubim guard the garden in Eden. With a flaming sword saying, you can't come in. It's like this angelic army shows up before Jacob and says, likewise, you can't come in. But Jacob knows it's actually meant to comfort him. Because you see what he says in verse 2. He declares, this is God's camp. He even names the place, two camps. Because he recognizes there's a natural camp, his family. There's a spiritual camp, God's angels. So he's surrounded by angels. Now you might want to ask the question, why does he need to see angels at this point? If they're meant to comfort him, that God is indeed protecting him, what's the fear in Jacob's life at this moment? Well, that comes next in what we see in Jacob sending for Esau. Look at verse 3 and five, three through 5. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed with him until now. I have oxen and donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. Now you want to picture the geography of the scene here at the moment. Jacob's in the north. He's probably about 100 miles north of where Esau would have been living. So he's sending these scouts 100 miles south to give something of a peace report to Esau. Because students, what was the last thing Esau would have said about Jacob in Genesis? When I see him again, I'm going to kill him. 20 years go by. It seems like Jacob doesn't know that Esau's mind may have changed. He's expecting that kind of militant, murderous tone to be true about his brother. And so he's sending a, a group of scouts south to communicate Jacob's coming back. And even the span of those three verses, he's communicating quite a bit. He's saying, hey, Esau, 
I've not been hiding for the last 20 years, cowering in fear. I've just been hanging out with Uncle Laban in the land of Haran. I'm not coming back to deceive you out of prosperity and material blessing as I did before because I'm quite rich now myself. I've got all these oxen and all these servants. And not only that, what you see at the end of verse 5, he's saying, I want to be your servant. Which is an interesting twist. Because God, of course, in chapter 25 of Genesis has said the older would serve the younger. Namely, Esau would serve Jacob. And here comes Jacob back saying, no, the younger is going to serve the older. He's trying to appease his older brother. And look at the report that he hears back, verse 6 and 7. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. For why else would 400 people be marching alongside Esau if he didn't have an intent to do Jacob harm? He's essentially thinking, here comes Esau and Esau's army, and they're getting ready to wipe us out. Such is my twin brother's ongoing anger with me. So, in the remainder of this middle section, Jacob begins to do a few different things. As he waits for this conflict, this ensuing encounter with Esau, first he divides, he prepares his family. If you'll notice in the next few verses, he takes his family and the flocks and divides them into two camps. His tactic is this. Esau and 400 men, they could probably take one camp, but they can't take both camps. So if he's coming, at least half the family and half the flocks are going to get away free. And he doesn't just do that. You'll see in verse 9 through 12, he doesn't only prepare his family, he prays to God. And it's a prayer that I want to read in full because, first of all, it's the first time Jacob has prayed in Genesis, believe it or not. Secondly, believe it or not, it's the longest prayer in all 50 chapters of Genesis. And it's quite a model prayer in and of itself. Notice what he says, verse 9 through 12. O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, Yahweh who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Such is Jacob's first prayer and the longest prayer in Genesis. You know, throughout the years, certainly recent years, I've had the joy of being with Dr. Sinclair Ferguson and listening to him pray before meals, meetings, even classroom lectures. A couple of you in here have been RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, and have experienced the same. And you know, and you might have experienced this in your own life with other individuals, when Dr. Ferguson folds his hands behind a lectern over a table and he bows his head to pray, you know that you are getting ready to go on this guided tour to the throne of grace. Because minutes pass, more minutes pass, Yet more minutes pass, and you realize, don't you, that he's praying to a God that you haven't even begun to truly understand, that there's such familiarity, there's such humility before the throne. And I imagine, I certainly hope, 
Uh, some of you might have a family member, a friend, church member, church leader that whenever you hear said individual play, pray, there is this overwhelming sense of God's presence that they seem to know so much of and you realize you know so little. And in a way, I want you to understand that with Jacob's prayer here. Because it is a faithful prayer through and through, even though many people actually think it's not. It's the first time he's prayed in all of Genesis, right? He's probably 100 years old or so at this point. How deep can his spirituality truly be? Or even the end of the passage, as one commentator says about verse 12. He says, it sounds like a whiny prayer as Jacob is just throwing God's words back in God's face. But you said. But that is a biblical way to pray, isn't it? To plead God's promises. Like the old preachers would used to say in prayer, true prayer, we sue God on the basis of his promises. So often what we need to do in prayer when we don't know what to say is to bring God's promises back to him because he delights to hear his people who rely on his perfect eternal word to govern their thoughts, to guide their hearts. I suppose even some of you this day might need to go and bow your knee in prayer and say, but you said. Don't be afraid, I am with you. But you said, I will provide for your every need in Christ Jesus. But you said, you would be God to me and my children after me. But you said, the church would be built and the gates of hell will not stand against it. But you said, the waters would cover the earth as, as the waters cover the earth, the knowledge of you will cover the sea. But you said, is a faithful way to pray. And of course, Jacob is saying here what? Esau's coming, and it seems like he's going to wipe out my family. And God, I'm scared. But you said my family would be multiplied like the dust of the earth. Won't you do something about this war that we're getting ready to start? So he prepares his family. He prays to God. And then finally, in this middle section, verse 13 through 19, you'll see that he sends Esau presents. Because kids, if you want to add up the numbers of animals that you see Jacob send in verse 14 and following, if your addition is correct, certainly if my addition is correct, that means you've got 550 animals that he's sending to Esau in a series of waves. 550 animals at that time would have been this exorbitant gift. That's essentially what Esau is going to say in the next chapter. Like, I don't need this much. But it's also probably a military tactic of sorts. Esau's going about every 10, 15, maybe as far as 20 miles, and then yet again, a wave of animals. And messengers come from Jacob, slowing Esau down, weighing Esau down with all of this wealth, with all of these flocks. And you'll see the purpose of the presence. Look at verse 20, what Jacob says to himself. He thought, I may appease him, that being Esau, with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. You know, it's one of those times where footnotes in your Bible are really helpful. Because three times in this simple verse, the word face shows up. Perhaps I may appease his face, that I might see his face, that he might lift my face, is what the text actually says at the end. And you parents surely know what Jacob is desiring here, that his face would find itself lifted from his brother. Because, right, you know, in those moments where certainly when the children are younger and you're correcting them and you're saying that they have done wrong and they come to you with some degree of sorrow, some degree of shame, 
what do they begin to do with their face? Study their toes, right? Just look down. And then what you're doing as a parent is what? Communicating what you must. Restoring their relationship as you must. So that they can look up once again. Because a lifted face, isn't it what? One of the greatest signs of reconciliation between two people who were apart. Two people who divided. And that's what Jacob wants in this moment. He wants to go before Esau, bow before Esau, and find Esau in forgiveness, lifting his face. And even the language here of appease in verse 20, it's atonement language, actually. So it's used, for example, in Exodus 32, that great golden calf sin of Israel. Moses says, as he's getting ready to go back up the mountain, he says to the nation of Israel, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps I can appease God, because of your sin. And that's pointing us, isn't it, to the true offspring of Jacob that would come and he would appease God's wrath in order to reconcile his people unto the Father through his shed blood, that their face might be lifted, that no longer would you have to stand in God's presence and gaze at your toe and look at the ground, because God says, lift up your face. My son has appeased my wrath so that you might know my loving kindness. That's what Jacob wants as he's sending for Esau. So he's surrounded by angels. He's sending for Esau. And now, of course, famously, he strives with the angel. Because the text tells us that that night, he sends his family across the fort of Jabbok. So they're on the north side of this body of water. Jacob is by himself on the south side, anticipating that when morning comes, he's going to meet Esau all alone. And then in a way that is always surprising to me, If you glance at verse 24, without any preamble or comment, look what we're told. A man wrestled with Jacob until the breaking of the day. I was reading this text to my children last night, and one of them said, a wrestling match all night long? Really? Hours and hours of wrestling? And that's certainly what is going on here in Genesis 32. And even, well, you'll see what the angel says in or the end of verse 24, wrestled until the breaking of day, and when the man saw he did not prevail against Jacob, he puts a dip in his hip, doesn't he? Touches him, knocks that hip out of socket, so the wrestling match might be over. Now you want to recognize what's going on here, lest you attribute to Jacob more strength than he really has. It's not as though, because we're getting ready to find out, this angel is the angel of God. It's not as though Jacob actually could win a wrestling match with God. Every father knows what's going on here, right? You wrestle with children, and you can extend that wrestling match as long as you want. It could be two minutes. It could be two hours. It could be two days. But the minute you're ready for it to be done, you just touch them in such a way. You show a feat of strength that that wrestling match is over in an instant. You know, we know this in our house with five little boys. You know, oldest is nine, youngest is two. We can wrestle with all of them for however long they want. But when daddy's ready to be done, we'll end it right there. And that's what... God does, doesn't he? He touches Jacob's hip. And you have to recognize what's going on with Jacob. For hours, he's been wrestling with this mysterious figure. Who do you think he probably thought it was initially? Some sort of advanced scout from Esau. Grappling for life there in the dark. Completely unable to see who's in front of him. But right when he touches his hip, he seems to realize this is no ordinary person. 
I'm wrestling with. No one can just do what just happened to me in my hip. And so it's why he begins to plead for a blessing because he knows this figure can give him what he wants. Protection according to the promise. Verse 26 continues, notice, Then this angel says, Let me go, for the day has broken. Right? Jacob cannot see who is wrestling him because no one looks upon God and lives. Let me go. Daybreak is almost here. And Jacob, of course, says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he wants the blessing. He wants the blessing of provision. He wants the blessing of protection that God has promised to him. But you need to see in the sweep of the passage, Jacob is not yet truly ready for that blessing. God has to do something to him. The angel has to do something to him, namely change his nature in many ways. Look at how that is communicated in verse 27 through 28. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. You know, if, if you stop right there, when you read texts like this, I genuinely don't know what to do about the illusions that I hear, but I'll give you one. The last time Jacob was asked what his name was, do you remember what he said? Esau. When Father Isaac said, who are you? I am Esau. I'm grasping for the blessing in my own strength. It's almost as though he realizes, isn't it true this time? I'm Jacob. All I've been doing my entire life, what does his name mean? Heel grabber. I've been striving with men. I strove with my twin brother in the womb. I strove with my twin brother when I took his birthright. I strove with my father when I took the blessing by deception. I strove with my uncle when I tricked him into giving me riches and getting out of his house under the cover of night. I'm a person who strives endlessly with men to get what I want. But what does the angel say? Verse 28. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. I think what we're meant to Certainly for the first time in Genesis, he's now striving in a God-centered way, recognizing that it is only Yahweh that can give him what he so desperately desires, what he so desperately needs. And of course, you'll see as the text continues, he wants to know the name of his opponent. And in this rhetorical Eastern way, he essentially says, you're not going to get my name. Why do you want to know who I am? And I think the reason Jacob doesn't get the name is because it's none other than this pre-incarnate manifestation of the Son of God whose name was not going to be revealed until many centuries later. When another angel would reveal it and say, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this is the Savior who changes the name of his people from sinner into saint. Jacob is learning here that it's only those who rely on God alone that can enter in to the promised land. He recognizes as much, doesn't he? Verse 30, he called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And so the sun rose as he passed on from Penuel, limping because of his hip. So at the dawning of the day, it's showing us the new reality in Jacob's spiritual state, 
The sun now has, has dawned upon him. And it's a dawning that came through a limp. Through wrestling with God as now every step of his life is going to communicate something to everyone who sees him. That he wrestled with God and he prevailed for the blessing. A blessing that only belongs to those who truly rely on God alone. I think it was two years after our nation's independence that John Adams crossed the Atlantic Ocean. Because he was supposed to meet with King George. And he did meet with King George. And when John Adams crossed the Atlantic Ocean back to the colonies, he was regularly greeted with crowds and friends coming and asking the same question in many ways over and over. What was it like to meet the king? And I suppose that it's no stretch for us to say that for the rest of Jacob's life, he would entertain questions like that. Grandfather, tell us once again what it was like to wrestle with the angel of God. What raced through your mind when he touched your hip? Or Father, what was it like to meet with God face to face and still be here to talk about it? Well, what I want to do as we begin to close is begin to answer some of those questions. What's it like to truly meet God and encounter his blessing according to our text? To meet God's blessing tells us one thing, of course, at the beginning, that it's a personal blessing. Look back at verse 24. It's a personal blessing. Those first five words in our English translation, and Jacob was left alone. You know, don't you, that this is how God always meets with his people when he means to do significant life-changing work in their hearts. It's when you're alone. For there is a time, isn't there, coming when you will all stand alone before God when he means to do business with you. So children, recognize that in such a moment, just as Jacob is standing here with no provision, no protection, all alone, it's not as though in that moment you can stand on your grandfather's religious history, your mother's devout, sincere faith. You must stand alone before God because it's a personal blessing. It's also a prayerful blessing, isn't it? I mean, it's why the later Old Testament in particular reflects on this scene in such a way that it becomes this picture of what true persevering prayer looks like. Sometimes you might read it and think, well, it's really wrestling. It's not praying. But is not that the heart of faith and prevailing prayer? I will not let you go until you bless me. Even Hosea chapter 12 verse 4 tells us in that moment, Jacob was weeping before the angel. So Desperate was he for God's blessing. When was the last time you wrestled in such a way as to weep? Do you ever wonder if our dried up tear ducts communicate quite a spiritual reality? That our desperation is quite small? That our trust in God's promise is not very big either? That our longings are far too little? You know, Robert Murray McShane Uh, This great beloved pastor in Scotland used to have a pen pal that was actually an older saint in his congregation that he always wrote letters to, Mrs. Thane. They just kind of encouraged each other spiritually back and forth. And I came across a letter this week that McShane wrote to her in which he said, I trust that you have often such times as that of Jacob at Peniel when God had to cry out, let me go for the day breaketh. Alas, we do not weary God now with our wrestlings. And I think that's true today, some 200 years later. Far too few churches, 
far too few Christians weary God with their wrestlings and such persevering prayer. When you truly meet God, it's always a, a meeting that is a meeting of a personal blessing. It's a prayerful blessing, but also a permanent blessing. A permanent blessing. Because you see in the text, it's underscoring this, right? Every step Jacob is now going to take is a visible reminder of his encounter with God. For years and years, perhaps decades later, every time he greets someone anew, they say, hey, what'd you do to your hip? Well, let me tell you, when God crippled my self-sufficiency one night when we were wrestling. And not just that, if you glance down at verse 32, the nation of Israel, every time it had a meal of meat, it was going to be a reminder of God crippling permanently Jacob's self-sufficiency. It's almost as though in the text it's telling us that God often, some of you know this, oh, swing a right hook to cut down your self-dependency. He will teach you that lesson if you haven't learned it yet. It's through sorrow and suffering that God cripples your reliance on self. That's exactly what happens here with Jacob. That no self-reliant, self-dependent, self-sufficient person belongs in the promised land and so God cripples him to make him ready for the blessing. That, of course, he receives. Look at the end of verse 29. And there, God blessed Jacob. So it's, of course, the same message that Jesus, the offspring of Jacob, would preach so many years later when he warned people. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man, a self-sufficient person, to enter into the kingdom of God. It was Jesus, the true offspring of Jacob, who also would know this kind of wrestling all night with God in prayer. As he wrestled in Gethsemane's garden, sweating teardrops of blood. As he wrestled on the cross, crying out the psalm of the forsaken. But oh, wasn't his prayer gloriously different than Jacob's? Where Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Jesus says, I will not let you go until you bless them. Until you welcome them in. Until you appease your wrath because of my offering. Until you cover their sin by my blood. I will not let you go until you bless them. And so it still is the truth that God only blesses those who rely on him. And of course, this side of the cross and the empty tomb, it's only those who rely on Jesus Christ, who himself is the blessing, who himself is the promise, who himself is the covenant, that anyone finds a warm welcome into God's heavenly home. Enter in, the Lord will say, good and faithful child. Because of course, where Jacob was made to stand alone, you won't have to. The son of Jacob will stand next to you. And he will hold you fast, even through the midst of your weakest, darkest night. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do thank you that you hold us fast in Jesus Christ. That his blood covers our sin, his blood atones for our iniquity. That all the blessings and promises are yes and amen in your Son. Let us wrestle with faith afresh this week that we might by your Spirit prevail upon you and prevail with you as we cling to Jesus Christ, looking to him for all blessings. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen.